0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly. Written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and today I sit down with Vanitha Reisner to discuss questions we ask God in suffering, loss, and longing, which is the topic of her Bible study, Desperate for Hope. As you'll hear in today's episode, Vanitha is no stranger to suffering and loss. But she is also no stranger to clinging to God when little in her life was easy or perceived as hopeful. These are the conversations I love to bring to you on Grace Enough because they go beyond the Band-Aid Bible verse, giving you a glimpse into someone's long and faithful journey with Jesus through the darkest valleys to the beautiful summits. If you are looking for more of that, I have revamped GraceEnoughPodcast.com, listing six categories on the front homepage that include relevant podcast conversations to provide hope and guidance in the areas of church hurt, mental health as a Christian, questions about sex and identity, and more. Visit GraceEnoughPodcast.com to get started listening to those episodes today. Good afternoon, Vanitha, and welcome back to the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back here. I know it's been a long time, but you know, you are one of very few guests that I've had on twice. So this is exciting for me too.
2: Wow. You were one of the very first podcasts I did, Amber. So I remember being terrified. And so, um, yeah, this is fun to get get to be on again.
1: (laughs) And you did a great job. It's funny because, um, well, we know that we live around the corner from each other, but not everybody here knows. So um, maybe you'll be my first one in the future to do a live interview. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) That would be fun. I know. Um, Okay. So, Although you've been on the show in episode 51 and shared quite a bit of your story, for those people who are listening who haven't heard that conversation, share a little bit of your story, you know, particularly in regards to suffering. Yeah, so I
2: was born in India, and when I was a few months old, I contracted polio, and it was uh, over a decade after polio, the vaccine had been developed, so the doctors had no idea what it was. And in India, they usually give the polio vaccine later. So the doctors gave me the wrong medicine, basically. And within a few days, I was uh, paralyzed. I was a quadriplegic. And then they realized, wow, we gave her the wrong thing. She has polio. But at that point, there was nothing they could do. The polio had spread through my whole body because they had given me cortisone, which breaks down your body's immune system. Um, And so I was probably had a mild case of polio, but because my immune system was down, it just spread. But I also had a really high fever. So they were afraid I would get seizures. So I am grateful in a lot of ways that I didn't Mm -hmm. have that. I didn't have brain damage or I don't think I did. Um, (laughs) so, So then- The doctors told my parents to leave India because they said there's no services here and there's nothing we can do here. So my parents moved from India to England, and then we moved from England to Canada, and I just had surgeries. So my first surgery was in England when I was two. Then we moved to Canada for my dad's job, and I had lived in the hospital basically for almost five years and was there for a year once, uh, flat on my back in a body cast. Grew up, for the most part, before I was 10, in and out of the hospital every Mm. summer. And by the time I was 13, I had had 21 operations. So really pretty serious amount of surgeries. But I was able to walk, which was pretty incredible. Like by the time I was seven, I took my first steps without um, any kind of aid, which is pretty Mm. amazing. And I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I technically don't have enough muscle to walk. Like, oh, we have a chart. Like I was at a a clinic a bunch of years ago and then they were like, you don't have enough muscle to walk. Like, it's pretty crazy that you can do this. Like this woman at this clinic I was at said, if you like chart your muscles and the muscles of a woman who was just here today, um, she's in a wheelchair, she can't walk and she has more muscle than you do. Wow. So pretty wild. God was with me through that whole time but I was not a Christian, Amber. Mm -hmm. I was so angry that my life was so different. I dealt with bullying as a child. Kids would make fun of me. I have a pretty pronounced limp and did then as well. So just a a tough childhood in that sense, Mm -hmm. but came to Christ at 16 and really felt like, wow, I'm about to live my best life now and really Mm -hmm. felt that there would be no more suffering. Mm -hmm. And for 10 years, life was perfect. I mean, I- didn't have a lot of suffering, went away to college, uh, lived in Boston for four years, used to walk to work, went to grad school, met and married a classmate. Mm. Just everything was great. And then it wasn't. And then my husband had an affair when I was pregnant with our first daughter. Um, I ended up having four miscarriages, lost an infant son because of a doctor's mistake. A doctor took him off his medicine. He he was born with a heart problem and was doing fine, actually, after his surgery, but a substitute doctor impulsively took him off his medicine and, and he died. That really pulled me from God, Amber. I had been teaching Bible study at our church. I had said God never makes a mistake. When I found out about Paul's heart problem and even after he died, but probably a few weeks after that, I wanted to pull all those words back. Because I I didn't know where God was. Like, I, you know, sometimes you say stuff because it sounds like the right stuff to say Mm -hmm. and you do believe it, but then life unwinds and you think, wow, was that even real? Mm
1: -hmm. And that's
2: where I was. So, went through that. Then I was diagnosed with post polio syndrome six years after Paul died, which is when I went to that clinic and the doctor said, you actually don't have enough muscle to walk but my muscles are getting weaker. So post-polio syndrome basically means that um, all my, my body is going backwards. And as I mentioned to you, I was a quadriplegic when I first got polio and they said I would never do anything. But within months, little things started happening and I could move some limbs that I couldn't move at all. And they've discovered now there's this theory that it's like when you get polio, your primary motor neurons die, but then your body starts sprouting up these secondary motor neurons. So it looks Mm -hmm. like you're making this huge recovery and you are, but these second motor neurons have a limited life. Mm -hmm. And like primary motor neurons, you go to the gym, you replenish your body and it happens over and over again. Mm -hmm. But with secondary motor neurons, that does not happen. So every time you exert energy, you are depleting from a set store of energy that you have. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that, but they said, basically, the more you do, the weaker you get. So I've been getting weaker. So now I use a wheelchair more than I walk. I have very limited use of my arms. So have been going backwards, which is why I went to that polio clinic. And and eventually I may be a quadriplegic again. So just sort of coming to terms with that has been something Mm -hmm. And then six years after I was diagnosed with post-polio, my um, ex-husband, but husband at the time, came home and told me he was leaving for someone else. So I raised two adolescent daughters as a single parent. Um, They were angry. Our home kind of exploded with anger. So just figuring out how to parent two children that were walking away from faith and really questioned if God was real or around even. So that's um,
1: kind of in a nutshell, my story. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even hearing it again, Vanitha, it's hard. It's hard. And then I know that you have clung to faith and I have seen God bring beauty from ashes in your life. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And I think that's why you have written this most recent Bible study, Desperate for Hope. And so I, I hadn't really planned on digging into that aspect, but is that what really gave you that idea like wow I have seen beauty from ashes yet I know that my future is not necessarily suffering free. Yeah, I think that that is. I mean,
2: I I wrote it I think because I came to suffering with questions. Mm. And I know that I will continue to have them. I mean, it sounds crazy that I write about suffering and that I would still like ask God, like, why did this happen? Or do you love me? Mm-hmm. Or or how do I even get close to you in the midst of the pit? Because I think when we're really in the pit, it's hard to even connect with God. It's, it's hard to open your Bible. It's hard to read mm-hmm. books, scripture, anything. And so I know that's the cycle of suffering. And, and I don't want people to feel like, wow, that means I don't have faith because i'm i'm crying out to god and i don't have this you know incredible peace that passes understanding every day of my life because god understands that and he does give us that but that peace sometimes we don't feel it in every moment we feel turmoil and fear and restlessness and we have questions and we don't feel god's love all the time even though we know it's there and I just don't want people to think, wow, something is wrong with me, because I think leaning into that and going to God with all of those emotions is really what's going to be the making of your faith. It was a making of my faith. Yeah. So I want people to take heart in that. And that's why I read the Bible study.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is so exciting to hear you say things like, yeah, sometimes you don't have that feeling of. I have all this peace that surpasses understanding. And I don't say that flippantly, but it is true. It's very, very true that we don't always feel it. And then I try to remind myself, you know, God has this view of time that's so much different than our view of time, you know? And so he doesn't look at every day as these 24-hour individual periods of time, right? Yes,
0: yes. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast.
1: Okay. So tell me this, when you wrote the study, I mean, really part of it is, is that so many people think that you have a weak faith if you ask questions or that it's wrong if you ask questions. And so flesh out a little bit, like, what are your thoughts when people say that, or when you just kind of get that air about people that they think, yeah, you shouldn't ask that?
2: Well, I think people who are afraid to ask questions, don't have as deep a trust in God in those that dare to Mm. ask. And and I say that because I I do think we need to fear God. We need to be in awe of God. But we need to see that he loves us and wants a relationship with us. He just Mm. doesn't want words that are detached from our souls. And he knows that we struggle. I mean, we see that in the Bible. The people after God's own heart were asking God these questions. I mean, you look at David and his Psalms were raw and Mm -hmm. he knew God. And so I think that's such a model for us that people who know God are willing to say how they feel. And I think that leads us to a deeper faith. And you see that in the Psalms in this beautiful way where David starts off with, you know, where are you, God, basically? You know, why have you forgotten me? Why have you turned your back on me? All of those sort of, these are my paraphrases, but these words that David says, but he ends up praising God in all of his Psalms when he is raw and hurting. And I think that's the way to a genuine praise mm. is to be honest. Whereas I think if we say, well, we're not going to ask God, then I think we we hold guard sort of at arm's length and we might be able to say the right stuff. But I think when wa- suffering comes in wave after wave, saying mm. the right stuff does not hold up. You need a relationship. You need to be able to go to God and trust that he will take your words
1: Mm.
2: and he will use them. And I think Dan Allender says something like, you know, lament leads to praise just as surely as the crucifixion leads to the resurrection.
1: Wow. And I believe that. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. Thank God for Dan Allender, right? (laughs) I said this to somebody last week because they had mentioned Dan Allender, and I was like, oh, thank you for Dan's work. It has... Made us all understand trauma and questions and things so much more. But in, in the study, you address six common questions that we as believers ask. And we're going to share a few of those in a bit. But um, you've already said that you ask these questions yourself. And so how do you feel like when you have walked through this, asking these questions of God, that you have been able to continue to cling to Jesus in the asking and in the suffering? Mm. Well, I
2: think an important part of asking, Amber, is looking for an answer. Like We just don't ask Mm. into the air. And and I think sometimes asking can be complaining and grumbling if we're asking and not expecting God to answer. And I think we look, We see that in the Israelites, in the children of Israel, like God was not happy with their questions, but they really weren't looking for answers. They were venting. Mm. And and we can certainly talk to God about our our struggles. and, And in some ways, complaining looks the same way, but our heart is different in complaining because we're not looking for an answer from God. And those are the times when we're complaining about God to people versus going to him and expecting him to answer us. So I think that's why questions can really deepen our faith is when we expect him to answer and look for his answers. And looking is an active process. It's looking at scripture. Like when I ask God a question, I want to look at scripture. Like, how is God going to answer me? And often he does. Like you look through scripture, and there's amazing answers to a lot of these questions. But sometimes there aren't. I mean, sometimes we look at scripture, and there's not a lot of answers. But I think that is when God answers with Himself. Mm. Like God will draw near to you, even in answering those questions that there really, I mean, aren't definitive answers for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the beauty of this relationship with God. Like He's either going to find us the answer, give us the answer, show it to us, or he's going to give us himself. And and really in the presence of God, those questions sort of die away because we see that there's something so much bigger because often we can't understand the answers to those questions anyway. Right. And so asking them is a good process, but expecting the answer exactly the way we asked is probably going to lead to frustration.
1: I love that you say the difference in searching for an answer versus venting because immediately there are things that pop into my mind, right? Where I have done both, where I have, yeah, I'm not coming to you really wanting answers. I am just coming to you because I'm annoyed right now and I don't like what you're doing. (laughs) And there is a big difference. So tell me this, you include, I mean, so much of your walk was lived out in your prayer closet where you just journaled and journaled and journaled. And I know that from conversations we've had from our conversation on um, the episode that you were on previously, but you've also included some of these personal entries in this Bible study. Why did you do that? And what role did this journaling prayers have during the season of your life? It's a great question.
2: I did it because I want people to see how real I could be with God, because I find when people really show me, then it helps me understand what does that mean? Because somebody says, I'm honest with God, but I don't know what that looks like. It's really hard for me to figure that out. So I wanted to yeah. say, this is, this is where I started. Like I would sometimes start, like I'm so angry and I don't understand and show me why. And why did you do this? And But somehow in my journaling, I would end up praising God and seeing God in a different way. And and I understood how David and Psalmist and Job, like you start off angry and frustrated and asking, and then God brings it around. You don't have to do that yourself. You don't have Hmm. to manufacture these words. It just comes the more honest we are with God. And the more we lean into him in that honesty and honestly ask him questions, the more he's going to change us. Mm. So I included it because it had been life-changing for me. And, you know, I think counseling is a wonderful thing. I'm all about counseling. Yeah. But there are probably people listening who can't afford a lot of counseling. That's right. That's true. They're in a stage of life where it's hard to even get out to a counselor. And I would say even more than counseling was journaling on my healing journey. And Mm. it was just writing it down. Like- I didn't need to talk to friends. And some people have great sounding boards and great friends when they're going through suffering, but some people don't have that as well. And they're listeners who are sitting alone in their house thinking, I can't afford a counselor. I don't know any counselors mm-hmm. or I'm on a waiting list and I can't get in. And I don't have friends I trust enough to to share this with. Yeah. And I would say, open a journal and open your Bible and just process with God. Because you can process all of what has happened in your life, what is happening today with the God of the universe, and he will heal you. And that's a healing that really changes you. So that is, I would say journaling led to my healing more than anything else, because I could read, I can go back over years and see God's faithfulness, see the questions I asked, see the ways God changed me. And I mean, there were certain days that I was at the end of my rope and I said, God, I need you to do this. And Mm. then I would forget like three days later, I'm journaling like, wow, this happened. But, you know, you live so much in the moment. We all do that. We forget that we asked God specifically for that three days ago. But if we're not journaling, it's totally gone from our mind. Mm. I think journaling are markers of God's faithfulness to us. We see we were in the pit and we came out and and we can remember that and friends can remind us. But if you journal it, it's there forever for you to remember.
1: Yeah, and it is so, it's so awesome to look back on. Like, I haven't been journaling as much in the last couple of years, and I've just recently thought, it is time to go back to that, because I miss being able to look back and see some of the specifics. Like, not only do you not remember just what God did, but you don't remember how in the pit you were, and what he delivered you from,
2: That is so true. Because
1: you forget, we we can't
2: remember pain exactly the way it was. And, and that's a good thing. Yes. Like I've been in major physical pain, but I can remember I was in pain, but I can't relive that pain. Emotional pain, you can relive in some ways, but often you can't remember exactly what it was like. Yeah. And so if you read it, you actually go back to it and it's like, wow, God brought me
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's definitely, uh, I think about the rocks when, um, I guess it was Joshua, you know, God said, pick up the, the rocks out of the Jordan and lay those out as a memory for what I've done for you. And that can be so much what journaling is, in addition to just helping you process your thoughts and emotions and asking God questions and things like that. So that's a, that's a good word. Will you, in response to trouble you wrote this. My initial response is usually panic. I imagine the worst. I obsess over what to do next. What redirects me is remembering God is in control while I rehearse biblical truths, truths that have sustained me in the dark. And so I feel like many people listening can really relate to that. Like they're thinking, yeah, that's me. I initially just panic or think, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Imagine the worst. And so I'm going to go through a few of the questions that you address in the study. And I want you to just respond with a biblical truth or just something that God really spoke to you when you were wrestling through these questions. So the first one is, if God loves me, how could he let this happen? Well, that's the first question in the Bible study. And I think that is the
2: first question we all come to mm-hmm. in suffering. Like, God, do you love me? Mm-hmm. So what I remind myself when I ask that question, like, I don't feel loved by God, is one, we know that God loves us. You know, God, yeah. Jesus died for us on the cross. But one thing that really helps me is, is wildly just understanding God is for me, mm-hmm. because I think we've feel that God is against us in our suffering. And I love Romans eight is a great place to go. When when you wonder, is God for me? And does God love me? Because the end of Romans eight has these amazing passages and and it starts off with, you know, what then shall we say in response to these things? And he's just talking about all the theology that God has given us about suffering. And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but graciously gave us gave him up for us all mm-hmm. how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things i think remembering wow god wants to give me everything he has died for me nothing can separate me from his love and he is for me and so even in the midst of this or especially in the midst of this trial God is for me. He is doing something for me. And that helps me reframe. And it's interesting because we do ask, if God loves me, how could this happen? But I love that children's song, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. So if we anchor our lives on the love of God, Mm. which we should, then we would change that question to instead of if God loves me, how would this happen to because God loves me, why did this happen? And that changes our full perspective. Like we're looking to God for answers because Mm -hmm. we know he loves us. And so I, that's sort of the bedrock principle. I think for all of our suffering is we need to believe that God loves us. And if we don't, I think we need to just ask God, like, I'm not even asking people who are listening to say, well, just figure it out yourself, believe God loves you, and then go through the suffering. It's like, if you don't feel loved by God, go to God and say, show me your goodness. Show me you love me. I need to feel that. And I'm sure there are listeners who don't feel
1: that. And so cry out to God. Open your Bible. Say, show me signs of your love. Read Romans 8. Yeah, I mean, because when you're in the midst of suffering, it's like what you said earlier. It's really hard sometimes to even get to that place. Um, and, And that's almost where it all ties together in the sense of, then write that out to God. Like I don't feel loved by you. And I but I want to believe what your truth says. So lead me in that way to find that. You know, where is it that you really do tell me that you love me no matter what happens? Um yeah. And I mean that it can just be really, really hard. It
2: really can because I think in suffering we really feel
1: abandoned. abandoned.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, cuz <laughs> nobody expects suffering. It always comes by surprise. And it's not a good surprise. Yeah. Oh.
1: It makes me sad. But I mean that we feel that way, you know, that we can get so feel so heavy and so burdened that you feel like you've been abandoned by God. That's that's not an easy place for anyone uh to walk through. But I think it's also true where something like what you've written in this study as someone who has endured great suffering. And, you know, your friend, um, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's been on here, like we can look to other people seated at the table in the family of God and how they have endured. And that also gives us strength in suffering, right? Yes. When we see people who've gone before
2: us who have walked really hard roads and, and that God has been sufficient for them, it it really encourages us, encourages me.
1: Yeah, me too. Well, the second um, question, one of them of which is from your study is what if the worst happens? How do you address that one?
2: Uh, One, remembering that God has been to tomorrow and Mm. he is preparing you today for what's there. So recognizing God is sovereign and, and he will never leave you. So whatever you are walking through today, remember that whatever is around the corner, God is with you in it. And just recognizing that with God's presence brings God's provision, Mm. God's presence. I feel like for, for all of these things for, you know, if God loves me, how could he let this happen? And what if the worst happens? knowing that God is with us and God loves us is really Mm -hmm. sort of this bedrock principle of the character of God in the midst of our suffering. So I, to me, the things that I cling to are God is with me. And I love, like, we all know and have memorized Psalm 23 or a lot of us have, and yet It seems almost trite because everybody knows it, but the truths in that psalm are so rich. And I love, you know, verse four, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Mm -hmm. And so just remembering that, like, what if the worst happens is realizing God will never leave me. And, And I love the fact that, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were about to be thrown into the fire and they say, you know, our God is able to save us. But even if he He doesn't, we will not bow down and worship Mm. this God, your gods, and Mm. recognizing even if, even if the worst happens, God will not leave us.
1: Mm. That's the truth
2: of what if the worst happens? If the worst happens, really the worst that can happen is death and from our perspective, but death is a passage from life to life. Mm. Death is unending joy. So, and sometimes just taking it to the end game and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, so what happens then? What happens then? What happens then? And realizing God will never leave us. God will provide for us. And one day we're all going to die. We don't know when. And God will be sufficient in our dying breath and we will be welcomed into glory.
1: Yeah. I mean, I even know, like that is something I say over and over again. Okay, God, you've said you'll never leave me and you'll never forsake me. I mean, goodness. Just repeat that over and over again to yourself when you are struggling in any way, suffering, intense suffering to the simplest of things of you're still awake, you know, you're spending wakeless nights with a newborn that won't sleep and you feel like you're never going to get out of that place, even though it's a gift that you don't realize at the moment (laughs) that you have, you know, still even just saying like, okay, God, you're with me. Like you are enough for me right now really does breathe life into someone. Um, Yeah. So, okay, here's the third one. Why is God letting me suffer? That was
2: my question after
1: my son died. Like, why did
2: God let this happen? And I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I know you do too, Amber. So it's not that God was not in control and that Satan let it happen and God, you know, kind of sat by and said, Oh no, I can't believe Satan is letting this happen. Mm -hmm. There is not um, a molecule that moves in the universe without the permission of God. And Mm -hmm. so recognizing that is, is a bedrock uh, truth for me. But then if you recognize that, then you think, okay, so why did God do this? Does God hate me? And I think recognizing that God has a good purpose in all of our suffering is huge, and and I remember hearing John Piper say, "God is doing a thousand things in everything He does, and we may only know a few of them." And so I think remembering that. But two scriptures that I would never quote to somebody in the midst of their pain. So I'm right. I'm, I'm putting this out there. Like one is Romans eight twenty eight. One is Genesis fifty twenty. And Romans eight twenty eight is, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And Genesis 50, 20 is um, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And those scriptures are so precious to me. But honestly, somebody gave me Romans 8, 28 at my son's funeral. And I they didn't feel super precious that day when he was like, oh, you should rejoice. God is going to use this. And that's cruel to say to someone, So, so don't say that. That's right. But in terms of your own suffering, remembering that God is going to use this and you may not see it in this life, but one day you will be thankful for it mm. because God loves you. And, and understanding that, which we just talked about, that's the bedrock. So if God loves you and God is all powerful, then this has to be for your good. And it is for your eternal joy. And it is for God's glory all of our suffering is, and just understanding that and realizing we may not see it has shaped my suffering.
1: It's good to point out, too, the way that it is a process. Like, you asked that question, and I mean, how many years almost would you say that you kind of wrestled with that until you finally were like, okay, not only do I believe that you're sovereign, but I can see more of your goodness in this? Well, it was a lot of years, Amber.
2: I came to Christ at 16, and it was really through a passage about God's purpose. So I came to Christ reading um, John 9, uh, just randomly opened the Bible. I say randomly because nothing is random with God, but it was random to me. That's right. um, (laughs) The uh, disciples see a man who was blind from birth and they asked Jesus who sinned this man or his parents. And Jesus says, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God would be displayed in his life.
1: Mm.
2: And that was purpose. The disciples were like, whose fault is this? Why did this happen? You know, it's gotta be somebody's fault. We've got to blame somebody. And we, we all do that. Like, oh, you're divorced. Whose fault is it? Was it you? Was it your husband? Like who did something wrong? So we want blame. And Jesus says, it's because God's going to use it. And so God's answer was not why they were asking why. And his was not why, what's the reason? His was why, what is the purpose? And I think that's the bigger question in all of our suffering is why, what is the purpose? Why is God letting me suffer? What is the purpose? And yet, so I had this huge revelation from God, felt like my suffering had purpose And then, so 16, I was 33 when Paul died. So 17 years later, and I'm like, what? What is the purpose? How did this happen? So we ask those questions over and over, and God is so patient because he gets it. When suffering comes afresh, we ask questions, and God is patiently listening and answering with himself, with scripture, through friends, because he wants us to know that he loves us and there is purpose to our pain. Mm -hmm.
1: Hmm. That's powerful. I mean, the idea that, yeah, you don't necessarily get just this revelation in one sitting and then that's it for the rest of your life. You never struggle with that question again. Right. I mean, that is part of the sanctification, sanctification of God in our lives. It's just the way he matures us and not because you're immature to ask those questions. It's just that's part of the process.
2: yes. Yeah, that's how we grow closer to God. That's how we grow in our faith. Mm. We're human. God remembers we are dust. Ugh. It's not a sign of a weak faith, it's a sign of somebody who's real.
1: Yes. And who wants genuine closeness and understanding and depth with God, I feel like. Yes, I agree. I mean, it's like, you know, you don't just marry someone who you just met, right? Like you get to know them through questions and through conversation and through exploration of, you know, their past, your past, whatever that may be. And while that's not a perfect description of our walk with God, it definitely lends itself to help us understand that we grow in intimacy with him in the same way that we grow in intimacy with other people in our lives.
2: Right. And I mean and that's such a great analogy Amber because say we're, we're married and we're mad at our spouse for something. Like we feel like they did something to hurt us. I don't think it's a sign of a strong marriage if you're like, "Well, I trust him. I'm not going to talk to him about this." Because we're going to pull away. <laughs> that's we're going right. to be like, "Uh, I I can't talk to you till I feel better." And it 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 just puts a wedge in our relationship whereas if yeah. we say, "You know what? I was pretty upset about this. Can we talk about it?" It draws us closer. That's right. And I I think that's the same way with God. If we feel like, oh, I'm not going to say anything to God about this because I shouldn't, but we Mm. still are bothered by it, that's that's not going to help our
1: walk with God. No, no, it's not. Well, so something that you do at the end of the study is you include this timeline. And the timeline has all of like... Plot out your happy moments or your highs in life, but then there's another portion of the timeline that is focusing on, you know, some of your greatest sufferings or some of your lowest moments. And so really, I'm the one that wants to know what what made you want to include that? What is the value in someone plotting those things out in their life? Well there's two things, two amazing
2: things I think about doing that. There's probably more. But one thing is you see that God is with you through all of those things. Like when you go back and you remember like Christ was with me in the pit when my son died and and just what God has done through that, how you've grown closer. Like just seeing a timeline helps you see the moments which felt so low but remembering that God was with you. And it gives you just a moving picture of God's faithfulness in your own mm-hmm. life. Like you see that all the way through scripture, where they recount their low points, their high points, and how God always mm-hmm. delivers them out of their low points. It's not like <laughs> yeah. God is delivering them out of their high points. Like, so God's presence is most tangible
1: mm-hmm. in
2: their low points. In all the Psalms, all the recounting of the Old Testament, it's like, well, the Egyptians were chasing us. We were in slavery and then God did this. So it's really out of these times of pain that you see God show up the most tangibly. So I think doing that exercise helps you do that. And then I had a friend who mentioned this exercise to me once and had them had me do it. And then they said, so you, you mark it on a graph. Your, your high points go up high, your low points go down low. And then they said, flip the graph around, like turn the piece of paper upside down. And they said, your low points emotionally are going to be your, the start of your, your, your spiritual high points. And it was true. Now It's not that our, our, our emotional um, high points are our spiritual low points. They're sort of Neutron, the graph. Like we're super happy when wonderful things happen, but right. it's usually not like I had three years of unmitigated ease and happiness and that, you know, I just grew so much on my walk with God. Like nobody says that, you know, <laughs> you, you, you can grow, but I mean, right. not saying that, but I'm saying the times that we just are like, wow, God showed up and my life was changed and my faith was deepened. Those are the hard times in our lives. So recognizing that our natural low points, particularly after we have come to the Lord are often our spiritual high points. And I found that was true in my own life. Mm. And so I want readers to maybe look at that and see how God does use often the worst things in our lives to draw us closer to him.
1: Mm. Well, and do you think too, sometimes plotting those high points is such a great reminder Of God's presence in the hard and the good. Yes. Yes. You know, like they really do. I've said before in conversations with people, just, you know, we really can be lamenting one moment and it's still okay if your child graduates from college in the next moment to be joyful. Like it doesn't have to be, oh, I should feel sad all the time right now, or depressed or the time, or I should feel happy because all this is happening. You know what I mean? Like both of those can go, can coexist. And it's easy to forget that, I think.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. We, some people either associate their high points with God, like God is blessing them. He's with them Mm. or, or their low points. Like God met me in my depression. And I think doing the timeline helps to see God is with us in every one of these moments, right? He doesn't leave us. So we praise him in the high
1: points and we cling to him in the low
2: points. Mm.
1: Well, let's close with this because, you know, the reality is we all go through seasons where we're desperate for hope that comes in so, so many forms. And so what are some of the practical ways that we, um, who aren't going through that desperate season can really help someone who is, what are some practical things you know that we're not slapping those band-aid Bible verses on them in the midst of their suffering. Um, but what are the things that you felt like you most needed uh, during those really, really hard seasons? Well, I have this acronym that I have in the Bible study
2: that is SHOW UP, S H O W U P. And that's a an easy way to remember what to do. And the S in show up is show up. For me, it's like bring chocolate and salty snacks if possible, <laughs> but if you don't have those, just come on by. So just having people just there, sit with us. Um, show up at the waiting room if somebody's you know, somebody's waiting for somebody in surgery. Now I know with now there's some rules about people getting in, but just show up where people are, offer to go to doctor's appointments, just be oh, there. Oh yeah. H is for how are you doing today? Like the question, how are you is so open and broad. I never know what to say. Like, how are you when you're struggling? I'm horrible. I don't know what you're asking me, but how are you doing today? How's today? I can Mm. answer like, wow, I'm feeling okay today or today I feel desperate. So I think the specificity gives people permission to really answer with a real answer.
1: Mm.
2: And then O is offer specific help which is, hey, I have Thursday afternoon free. What can I take off your to-do list? That's specific help. Yeah. Can I do your laundry on Monday? Can I bring you a meal of blank blank on Tuesday afternoon? And they might say, one, I'm allergic to blank blank or two, Tuesday afternoon, I have a meal, but do you have another day? Like mm. the minute you offer something specific, even if it's not what they want, they can counter with something else. And I somebody gave me this suggestion, which I th- thought was brilliant. Like, hey, if you have errands at Target, I can either A, get whatever you want at Target. B, I can watch your kids so you can go to Target or watch whoever you care for. Or C, I can meet you at Target and we can talk and get your errands done together. Wow. So, you know, depending on where somebody is, one of those things might be exactly what they need. Yeah. So just multiple choice is a super way to offer help. So just be specific. Don't say, call me if you need anything. Mm Because they will never, ever call. So you might as well just not say that because nobody will call. It is true. Yeah, but I say it all the time. So I say this to your (sighs) listeners knowing I do all these things, which is why I know that we shouldn't be doing them because I've done them. So I'm not like this great helper. My friends (laughs) will tell you that. So W (laughs) is words of encouragement. And that's either in a card or a note or a text or a a phone call or in person. Just encourage people Mm-hmm. texts are great. In the morning, you can text somebody praying for you, have a scripture mm-hmm. just say no need to respond, but just knowing somebody is there and cares is a huge gift to us. Mm-hmm. Um, You is use active listening. We often want to offer many sermons. I do. I think I have these great words of wisdom, but I really don't. And nobody really wants to hear them. (laughs) They want me to listen to them. And so just be actively listening. And sometimes people want to be quiet and we want to fill the air with these words of wisdom that we think we have. But you might want to say, hey, can I just sit with you in silence? Or or what is most helpful for you? But often people want to speak and not be judged by their careless words. Like they might say Hmm. horrible things. They might be doubting their faith. And you don't want to say, oh, don't say that. Don't do that. Just let them talk. Um, John Piper talks about the fact that um, Job says to his friends, like, Am I, are you judging me by my windy words? So basically can we let some words be words to the wind and they just go, mm-hmm. like we hear them and we don't have to judge them. So that's yeah. part of active listening, use active listening. And then P is pray, pray for them, pray with them, pray for all the needs that you know they have and mm-hmm. pray for yourself that God would show you what to do and pray for yourself that you would remember to pray for them. Because I say, I'll pray for you. And unless God reminds me, I mean, I have it on prayer cards, but I need God to remind me to pray for them. So, so ask God to do that. I think sometimes we try to muster all this up ourselves and God says, ask me, I want to, I want to help you. I want to do this. Yeah. So just, just prayer um, undergirds the whole thing. So that's show up in ways we can be there for people.
1: I feel like I need to put that on a post-it note or like a pretty card and put it up because it's true. That's that's great. I mean, that applies to so many things. I think actually those are words of wisdom for us just as believers, really, and how we interact in general. So Benita, thank you so much. You're such a wonderful writer, and I've always felt that way, but it's not only that, like You really do share from experience and a love of God that is genuine, and I appreciate that about you so much. So thank you for being here today.
2: Oh, thank you, Amber. This was so much fun. I mean, the fact that we're friends in real life is just
1: (laughs) great. So
2: thank you for having me on. I've loved it.
1: You're welcome. If you're looking for a Bible study to begin now or in the fall, I definitely recommend Desperate for Hope. If you purchase through the link in the show notes, I receive a small payout at no cost to you. And remember to visit graceenoughpodcast.com to explore the six podcast categories I've listed to help you get started listening to previous episodes you may have missed or to use as a guide when recommending episodes to your friends.
0: Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time.